The history of Rocky Horror is a history of cinema. For everything you like about Rocky Horror, there was at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on... Episode Zero! Everybody and welcome back to episode zero, the Rocky Horror Podcast, where we don't really talk about Rocky Horror. <laughs> uh, although this very first episode, the inaugural episode of the Rocky Horror edition of episode zero, probably will be talking a little bit about Rocky Horror. We think people might need a baseline because the concept behind episode zero uh, wasn't just, and if you've listened to our first 20 episodes, you might think it is. Uh, wasn't just to talk about the prehistory of Star Wars. That was just our first season. We thought it would be a really good idea to do a Star Wars podcast in which we talked about all of the films that inspired Star Wars because they sometimes get lost in the shuffle because people love Star Wars so much. But we so Star Wars has eclipsed the things that inspired it. This is often the case with a lot of really popular things in a variety of different mediums. And we realize that there are maybe not an infinite number, but quite a lot of major movies or motion picture franchises even uh, which are beloved, but which have perhaps eclipsed the various films that inspired that film or that film franchise. And so we wanted to do a podcast dedicated to all of the films that gave you the thing you love. And we really wanted this to focus on pop culture phenomena. There is no bigger pop culture phenomena in the history of cinema, I think, than Star Wars. Well, Wizard of Oz, but and then Star Wars. Maybe, but Star Wizard of Oz didn't have this huge giant franchise, and it didn't sell action figures, and that's, didn't have a lot of uh, you know. That's true. One could make the argument. Uh, so we had to ask ourselves, what do we do as a follow up? We feel like we've run our course with Star Wars. We've told uh, the the history, the prehistory mm. of Star Wars, as mm. best we can. We made the Kessel Run and twenty parsecs. Sure. Now we had to decide what came next, and it actually came. Pretty easy, and this hmm. was your idea. This is, yeah, um, in terms of like pop culture phenomena that loom large in my life personally, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is right up there. I started attending when I was in high school. I went all through college. Uh, then I became a manager at the theater that showed it, so I was always working it. So kind of by osmosis, I've seen the film you know, over a thousand times. Uh, That's not an it, exaggeration. That, no, that is not an exaggeration. I did. I, I saw it like as a paying customer. Maybe only about 100, maybe 150 times. That's also um, a lot. That's also, well... That's you a know, lot of times to see a movie in a theater. Indeed, indeed. Especially in the same film. And uh, the Rocky Hour Picture mm-hmm. Show, uh, if you were in the right city, uh, played on a weekly basis. It, mm-hmm. it was a midnight show, uh, typically on Saturday nights, so depending on the theater, mm-hmm. uh, where they'd show this 1975 musical based on a 1973 stage play uh, about... Uh, a Frankenstein-like doctor living in an old dark house. Uh, and, that will be and, important later. And, uh, and and the innocent couple that staggers in and uh, falls into all of the uh, super queer, over-sexualized shenanigans therein. 
Uh, it's a musical. It was really, really fun. It's very, very strange. It bombed when it was first released, and it gradually uh, accrued its sort of cult following, at least here in America. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't speak to the way it grew in England, I, but I, I think it was sort of the same. Like, it mm. premiered in England. A little while later, it premiered in America, and, and gradually grew its cult over time. Uh, Richard O'Brien wrote the book and music. He also did the stage plays. Uh, Tim Curry rather famously played the evil Dr. Frankenstein character, Dr. Frank and Furter. Mm. Uh, it was Susan, uh, an early role for Susan Sarandon. She played, uh, Janet, the young, one of the young innocents, Barry Bostwick played, uh, Brad, the other innocent. And, uh, all of these characters became just a regular sight for me mm. personally, because I'm going in and we're seeing people dress in these costumes. Uh, the cult, the cult, as you probably know, uh, is people who go to the theater who aren't associated with the theater and they have made screen accurate costumes of the characters on the screen and they perform on a stage in front of the screen as the film is running. It's called a shadow cast. Yeah, they, they use the term shadow casting to, to describe what they do. Um, over the years, the relationship between the exhibitors and the casts has changed. But for a long time, people would pay money to essentially see their own show. Uh, before these sort of shadow casts became organized, it was just sort of this loose cult of people who loved the movie and would shout out lines. And eventually people started enacting scenes from the movie. And that grew into, uh, the Rocky horror picture show as a film slash stage production. Yeah. It became an interactive event. Mm. And, uh, another element of it would be, uh, well, first off, there'd just be a big ass party. Basically everyone's mm-hmm. just around wearing kinky costumes mm-hmm. and having a great time. If you've ever been, it's really, really wonderful. And if you haven't had an opportunity Hopefully, when this whole pandemic that we're in the middle of right now subsides, Rocky Horror can resume wherever it is nearest to you. But it is, I think it's a rite of passage for any film lover. It needs to go at least once or twice. I I, I agree. I think uh, any young person who's interested in uh, subcultures or countercultures needs to go see Rocky Horror once or twice. I started going back in the 90s. Back when it's still a little dangerous, like older kids, like adults were going. Um, A lot of people were like drunk more often. It was a lot more rowdy. There was actually sex in the theater. Yeah. And over the course of the ensuing like 15 years, Rocky Horror sort of crept a little bit more mainstream. The audience started to skew younger. Mm -hmm. And while it's still... And things got a little bit more tasteful. Yeah. yeah, The the tasteless jokes were still in there, but yeah, everything was a little less bawdy. Uh, less sex in the theater. Yeah, less of a party. Uh, it, it, it became less of this dangerous thing, but it, and uh, it's curious that it's still uh, held up as this important uh, milestone uh, in queer culture because now all of the stuff in Rocky Horror you can see in mainstream film. Yeah. There was a time when you couldn't see a lot of this stuff in movies. Yeah, Rocky Horror is an openly and forthrightly queer film. Yeah. Uh, it is a Fred. film about sexual experimentation. Mm. It is a film about kink. It is a film about uh, mm. the sort of clash rough, between... Rough trade and cross-dressing. Well, it's, yeah. a, it's about the clash between 1950s sort of Americana, American values and the sub-encounter cultures that were already present. Mm. And it's what happens when they collide head-on and basically explode. When worlds collide. Yeah, uh, the, the plot of the movie, again, it's about... Brad and Janet, played by Barry Boswick and Susan Sarandon, they are extremely milk toast. Mm. They're boring, white suburbanites. It's 
there's a and in fact there's a lot of details about the movie you'll miss mm-hmm. if you go to see it live. Yeah, because, because there's a lot are of over it. people are are shouting you know, all the rude comments over the movie, and so you you kind of, you might kind of miss that Barry Bo- Barry Bostwick especially, but Susan Sarandon as well are really playing up their squareness. They're mm-hmm. kind of cartoonish caricatures. They're in on of the joke. Ni- yeah, of 1950s wholesomeness that is about to be gayed out of existence. <laughs> yeah, so they're 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 they they get engaged. They go to see the professor who introduced them, which is, you know, exactly what you do when you get engaged. You go visit your high school science professor. Dr. Everett Scott. And uh, they their car breaks down, and the closest place where they think they can find a phone is a big fuck-off castle uh, full of a whole bunch of oddly-dressed kooks in the middle of a big old party because uh, the owner of the castle, the Dr. Frank N. Furter, mm. Uh, played by, I think this was Tim Curry's film debut? Um, I think it was. It's certainly breakout role. Tim Curry just fucking flying off the screen uh, as uh, a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. Uh, And he has created a creature who is a Dudley sex toy of a man. Charles Atlas was Basically. his inspiration. And, and, and we'll, uh, we'll, we may talk about Charles Atlas. There's not like a Charles Atlas movie per se, but we'll talk about sort of beefcake culture. I think we need to talk about beefcake culture. Eventually yeah. we'll get to the uh, sort of the Steve Reeves Hercules films, yeah, which yeah. are name checked directly in Rocky Horror. Um, but, um, basically Brad and Jen is forced to spend the night and over the course of the night, they are exposed to so much kink that they are completely changed. They, they and maybe give, they discovered that they were never that normal to begin with. Yeah, they, they give up all of their innocence. And the, the film ends in a, on a rather sad note. Yep. Uh, which I think was Richard O'Brien maybe goofing on the audience a little bit. How these yeah. morality plays end up, usually end up with a fall. Yeah. And, and it's, so it's, it, in one way, it's an arc about how Brad and Janet started pure and fell into depravity. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Frankenfurter, although he is held up as uh, an insp- an aspirational figure, mm-hmm. because Tim Curry is so fucking fun to watch, uh, he's functionally the villain of the story. Yeah, he kills people. He, he, in this yeah, movie. he murders people. Uh, he creates a, car- uh, a creature and then murders it all within the course of one song. Yeah. Uh, he, he's, yeah, a, a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Commits cannibalism for God's sake over the course of the movie. Yeah, and yet because he is sort of so confident and powerful mm. in his personality and his identity and his sexuality, uh, at a time when none of the other characters in the movie and indeed the universe of the film are, mm. he can't help but be seen as kind of a counterculture hero. Yeah, in yeah. a way, and I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people have gravitated towards Rocky Horror, especially when the cult was just beginning, because an excuse to dress like Frankenfurter, an excuse to dress like Magenta, hmm. an excuse to dress like Riff Raff, all of these weird characters uh, were an opportunity to explore publicly hmm. uh, something that was considered... Uh, not part of the mainstream, and indeed were things that were considered very risque. And uh, nowadays, thankfully, we're we're more open and we're more accepting, and the world is kinder to queer culture. But at the time, Rocky Horror was kind of a big place for it. It it, it was uh, it was a safe place, uh, Rocky Horror, and I think it still is uh, for a lot of queer youth. Who might be uncomfortable coming out to their parents can go to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, a very queer atmosphere, and just be queer. Yeah. They can just be out uh, in this safe theater 
uh, watching this goofy, kind of slow-moving movie <laughs> from the mid-1970s and uh, that kind of thrusts back at them that, you know what? Being kinky, cross-dressing, and being queer is fun. Yeah. It's fun and it's wonderful and we need to sing about it. And the most amazing thing, well, not the most amazing mm. thing about Rocky Horror, but one of the amazing mm. things that I love about Rocky Horror is that it and it name checks a ton of movies in the opening song alone, mm. science fiction double feature. It name checks a lot of its influences, and we'll be talking about. I don't think we're talking about every single one, but we'll talk about a lot of those uh, movies. Yeah, yeah, well, they'll they'll all come up. Yeah, uh, at least on on one level or another. Uh, but the influences on Rocky Horror, there are definitely some quote unquote mature influences, and we're going to be talking about one of those next week, actually. But a lot of the influences on Rocky Horror were the cult genre horror sci-fi mm. uh even hygiene films from the basically the 30s through the 60s mm. uh that were ostensibly rather mainstream production code moral i mm. use air quotes uh and yet they were often an excuse or gave people an opportunity to explore queer themes mm. without doing so directly right. and without getting in trouble with the mainstream. But if you're in the audience and you know what to look for, you're looking at these movies and going, yeah, okay, yeah, good. I'm, I'm at home here. Mm. Uh, the, there were a lot of uh, queer coded movies that were coming out during that time. A lot of them were made by queer filmmakers mm -hmm. uh, who were, sometimes they were like that sort of open secret, like they were out amongst the Hollywood elite, but you yeah. know, it wasn't really discussed It wasn't in the openly. tabloids, uh, you know, the people were trying to keep it, you know, there was always that like, if you've ever seen that movie Hail Caesar mm. uh, from the Coen brothers, Josh Brolin plays a guy whose whole job is to take all of these creative kooks who work at this movie studio making mm. a variety of different films and keep all of their shenanigans out of the press. That's his whole job. He's there to make sure that people don't know that this person had a child out of wedlock and this person's gay and all this kind of stuff. They're all being kept under yeah. lock and key by a studio so, who has an image to maintain. So, uh, queer people throughout these eras were keying into a lot of that iconography. And I think, uh, they were essentially, uh, trying to create, uh, heroes yeah. out of, what was being hidden in popular culture. And uh, in the 90s, they started calling this culture jamming. Mm. But if you kind of start to look at popular culture as this gigantic mishmash of imagery and, uh, imagery and iconography, and you kind of remix it in your head a little bit, you can filter out essentially what is true, what the, what's truth throughout all of this. So mm -hmm. it's like, okay, I'm watching a really square movie directed by Douglas Sirk gay uh there's a there's a lot of gay in douglas <laughs> i don't know Sirk. if that's there's... culture jamming so much as recognizing obvious well, it, like, like i said but... they're, they're keying into that and as but if you put it take it all as a whole mm. uh, you you find these you know emerging these icons of gay culture yeah uh and when you sort of started compiling those and putting all of those together you get stuff like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You get all of these things that had arisen throughout and became queer iconography throughout and essentially start addressing it directly. Yeah. And I think that's what the Rocky Horror Picture Show is. It's this old-timey science fiction musical horror mm. thing that is taking a lot of little bibs and bobs from all throughout culture, 
picking out all the fun queer stuff mm-hmm. and putting in this big outrageous musical. Yeah, it's just, which is really, and mm-hmm. this is a comparison I don't think a lot of people will make, it's really quite a lot like Star Wars. <laughs> because George Lucas took throughout the history of popular culture and mythic culture and mythic storytelling, took all the stuff he thought was neat, mm-hmm. all the stuff that hit his like childlike wonder, all the stuff that, like, regardless of whether it was in something... Uh, hoity-toity or something that was considered quote-unquote low art like the Flash Gordon serials mm-hmm. he was recognizing what what can I find from like the hero's journey what can I find from hero with the thousand faces like what are what is the connective tissue of all the things that I like and he put it all in Star Wars you don't have to only like those things to do that and this is kind of the whole premise of our show a lot of the most popular movies ever made are basically a pastiche of all that came before mm. and that is entirely true with rocky horror we're going to be talking about a lot of those films we are very excited to be talking about a lot of those films and to start with we had to pick a film we had to decide where are we going to where are we going to start this journey james whale was an obvious choice <laughs> <laughs> James Whale is all over the Rocky Horror Picture Show. James Whale. Holy yes. James yeah. Whale directed, and we're probably going to be talking about several James Whale films, much like when we did Star Wars, we had to talk about at least two or three Akira Kurosawa films. Right. Uh, James Whale, queer filmmaker, people knew in Hollywood at the time, it was not well known outside of it, directed many of the greatest horror movies ever made. Mm. And he did so as the genre was basically finding its voice in the sound era. There were a lot of horror films in the silent era. Many of them are all timeless classics. We'll probably be talking about a couple of those as well. But in the sound era, people were trying to figure out how do we use sound technology to be scary? How do we start adapting these various genres that maybe in a silent Mm. cinema you can be more forgiving more dreamlike but now it has to take on this added air of reality and james whale was at the forefront of that he's one of the greatest filmmakers i think of the whole 30s but certainly Mm. horror filmmakers well i mean it was him and todd browning had it like kind of locked down uh todd browning was sort of the weirdo he was interested in stuff like he did dracula todd browning and then his follow-up was a movie called Freaks, which is t- totally bizarre and about, mm. like, really interested in in uh, circus culture. And he hired real uh, circus performers, real circus freaks. Air uh, quotes. The, uh, the, the term used at the time. Or spurs, as the novel called them. Mm. Uh, as as cast members, uh, James Whale was a little bit more of an entertainer. Yeah, uh, which you know, you watch. He, was, he wasn't trying to put the audience off, yeah. and I think if you look at even his Dracula, Todd Browning was. Todd Browning yeah. was trying to make you uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, James Whale is clearly having a lot more fun. You, you watch Dracula and Frankenstein back to back. You're going to like Frankenstein because it's just a more energetic movie. Yeah, there's Dra- a lot more Dracula's going on. Dracula's like, like really packed. like nightmarish and, and stagey and slow moving. There's it's also like, a sensitivity to Frankenstein. I think yeah, James yeah. Whale had more sympathy for the monster, mm. whereas in Dracula, he's He's evil. the monster. Well, yeah. he's evil and he's fully cognizant of everything that he's doing. The Frankenstein monster is more like a child. Yeah. We'll probably be talking about Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein because the plot of Rocky Horror Picture Show is about making a Frankenstein. Exactly. So we'll get to that. We were going to start with that. That's a good, and that would, would have been a good one to start with. Yes. Uh, but uh, because it is about Frank and Furter making a creature, mm-hmm. but in terms of like scene by scene comparison and the basic structure of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, 
Another Universal James Whale film is far more appropriate. Yeah, it is uh, not typically considered part of the quote-unquote universal monster cycle, but that has it a lot... A, but it is a universal horror film. Well, it has a, that has a lot more to do with the circumstances surrounding the film decades after its release than it does with its quality or even its existence as a horror film. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about one of the coolest films of the 1930s that people do not talk about enough. Let's talk about James Whale's The Old Dark house you happen to have any idea where we are i haven't the least idea in the world we've come to ask for shelter we've lost our way what is it what do they want they want to know if they can stay here for the night my sister rachel had this room once she died when she was 21 Bless our Lord, this is the husband, they will approve a host of mankind. Amen. Whose life, I suppose it's a store. Here we are, six people sitting around. What do we know about each other? Not a thing. The Old Dark House. So the Old Dark House is about uh, Raymond Massey and Gloria Stewart. And they're the Brad and Janet. And they're in, and they're in a, and they have a sidekick this time, and it's Melvin Douglas from Ninochka, um, who is far more tolerable here. I actually, oh, way more I hated here. him in Ninochka. I think he's well, fine. The here. writing was bad in Ninochka. I know that sounds sacrilege. We've talked about Ninochka, uh, which is considered a comedy classic, uh, in a recent episode of our Patreon podcast, Only the Best, where we review every single mm-hmm. film ever nominated for Best Picture. And we got to Ninochka, and neither Whitney and I had seen Ninochka, and parts of it have not aged well. Uh, there, and there's a scene There's a scene near the beginning re- that's really shocking of Ninochka, because it takes place in the 30s, right when the Nazi party was coming into power in Germany, mm-hmm. and that's in the film. There are two characters who just sort of casually hile one another. Yeah. And, and that's... It's a joke. And, and it's, yeah, it's like this little side gag. Yeah, they, oh, are these really... people from Russia? And then they... They hile each other in that Nazi way, and then they go, oh, I guess not. And that's the whole joke. And you're like, wow, that's really dark in retrospect. That's not the movie's fault. I do blame the movie for, like, writing Raymond Massey's character so bad. Mm. I don't like the character. But it's not Raymond Massey's fault. Raymond Massey would also go Melvin Douglas. I'm sorry, Melvin Douglas. Mm. I was thinking R- of Raymond R- Massey. Raymond Massey's the hero of the old Dark Horse. I was old thinking Dark of Raymond House. Melvin Massey. Douglas is the, the sidekick character. I was thinking of Raymond Massey because Raymond Massey would actually go on. This movie co-stars Boris Karloff. We'll talk a bit about Boris Karloff in a second. Raymond Massey would go on to replace Boris Karloff in Arsenic and Old Lace because there oh, was a nice. character based on Boris Karloff in the play mm. who's specifically supposed to look like Boris Karloff. But they couldn't get Boris Karloff for the movie for scheduling reasons. That's a Frank Capra version. So they had had to get this guy who co-starred with Boris Karloff in a previous movie to do his best Boris Karloff impersonation. That's hilarious. (laughs) Uh, But the plot of The Old Dark House is actually incredibly simple. Uh, It is based on a 1927 novel called Benighted by an author named J.B. Priestley. Uh, And it is about uh, a married couple. They're actually quite bickersome. Hmm. Uh, and their friend who's in the back backseat, they're driving in the middle of the night. It's raining. The hood of their car, which is cloth, is like torn and it's pouring down on their face. The roof of the, their car, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's a landslide and they're on a mountain and there's nowhere they can go. And the only place they can find for shelter is a big fuck off castle. That just happens to be nearby in this yeah. rain, dark and stormy night. They knock on the door of the castle and who should be there but... Two extremely weird, eccentric 
people straight out of a horror movie, weird mm. shadows over their eyes, odd performances. Yeah. They we, say we, they're they they act like a married couple, but they they say they're that siblings, they're siblings. Yeah. And we have arrived in this house. They're not doing a big, you know, party because they made a creature, but we've arrived on a really bad night mm. because shit's about to get horrifying. <laughs> uh so yeah, it's it's like um if innocent people stumbled into Jane Eyre by accident, <laughs> but there's more than just the crazy wife in the attic to, to spoilers on Jane Eyre. Uh, it's like 150 years old. Yeah. Okay. I, don't, I don't think it's spoiled Jane Eyre. There's not just a crazy wife in the attic. There's a whole crazy family hidden throughout this mansion. Yeah. Basically it's, it's, they've been sort of living in isolation and it's very gothic. It's just mm. people trapped in a house with all of their family history eating them away inside to the point that you wouldn't be surprised if at any moment, even throughout dinner, someone would just pick up a knife and stab someone else they live with <laughs> and then just go about their mm. meal and ask if you've read any good books lately. Mm. It's just a horrible, hellish, frightening, mm. repressed world into which mm. these actually very vivacious, amusing funny, sexually rapacious people have wandered into. And that, I think, is one of the most interesting things when you compare Old Dark House and Rocky Horror. Is that the, the visitors are the ones bringing sensuality, whereas the, the denizens of the house are, are the ones who are really kind of sexually repressed. Yeah, it's interesting because they're both about that contrast. And indeed, the whole, our car broke down, we have to ask someone for help, and then they try to kill us genre mm. which is still alive and well <laughs> and the texas chainsaw massacre did that yeah, like it's yeah. been it's been done it's, and it always works because we've all been there where a car is all, someone's a car will always break down and you have to ask some stranger for help and that person might try to kill you that's the fear anyway but if they're asking someone for help if you encounter a stranger in an environment you're unfamiliar with and you're already uncomfortable with Horror movies often try to play with that anxiety that you are a different person. You are an outsider here. You are unwelcome here. And you might be seen as threatening or you might be threatened as a result. Yeah. So we are talking about from the root of this entire genre on which Rocky Horror, of course, is inspired, but certainly a part of, is Culture Clash. Mm. And where we have a bunch of young flapper types running into basically, as you said, like the cast of a Gothic horror novel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all of the, even though you say that the, the, the flappers essentially are the ones who are bringing like humanity and warmth and sexuality into mm -hmm. this place. And they are modernity. Clashing. Certainly that, that, yeah, that, that's what I was going to bring up is they're bringing in a modern sensibility to a place where modernity hasn't touched it yet. Yeah. And, uh, and in terms of its relationship to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, however, although the concepts might differ, it's not just the story. It's actually every single story beat yeah. is kind of the same. Uh, they they break down outside. Okay. They see the castle. There's a light. There's there's a song in Rocky Horror about they see a light. Over at the Frankenstein uh, place. Yeah. They knock on the door. A creepy butler opens up. It's Riff Raff and Rocky Horror. In this one, it's uh, the Boris brother. Karloff. It's Boris Karloff, who is... Um, uh, uh, oh. oh, what is what is the, the character's <laughs> name? Morgan. Morgan. I wanted to say Morrison. Yeah, I knew the, that was obvious. Morgan is the name of Boris Karloff's character. Uh, uh, Boris Karloff. Uh, this was after Frankenstein, but before Bride of Frankenstein. So he was already 
sort of popularized as a monster character. So he plays this gigantic mute man with weird makeup. If you're unfamiliar with the career of Boris Karloff, uh, he had been in stuff before, but when he had done Frankenstein, he was under so much makeup and they were treating the monster as this kind of like special creation mm. uh, that when he was credited in the James Wells Frankenstein, he was initially credited as question mark yeah. just the, to make it the scarier. monster question mark who was a person or was that a real monster? And I believe at the end he is credited properly as Boris Karloff in the closing mm. credits, which most movies didn't have at the time. Uh, uh, and then it, it says a good cast deserves a second mention. He wasn't credited as Boris Karloff. He was credited as simply Karloff. Karloff. And it's, it would just made him epic and legendary. And that's one of the great movie performances, not even a horror. And, and in this film, he too is also credited as Karloff. Yeah, he was a big selling point. He was a big star. He was putting butts in seats. This movie didn't make a lot of money, but that's an aberration. He was a big star. Uh, and uh, yeah, he was, he was actually a very versatile actor. Mm-hmm. I've seen him do a lot of different parts, but this is him doing his monster stuff and he's very very good he uh he cannot speak so he's speaking in a lot of grunts and he's basically the the predecessor to lurch in the adams family yeah if lurch was also an alcoholic who was so violent when he was drunk that the people who hired him were terrified of him at night and locked their doors in case the butler tried to kill them Uh, that's uh, a conceit from the new animated adams family movie Oh, that Lurch the, was like a they, maniac? Yeah, they, yeah. They, we actually... Forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, there's an intro in that movie where they we see how they met Lurch, and it turns out Lurch was escaping from a mental asylum. And he was like, like lunging towards them, like trying to you know, strangle uh, Morticia and Gomez, and they, they just said, oh, ha, you're a butler, here's our bag, and he grabs the bag. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and they move right back into the uh, institution that I guess it closed down or something. Like it was Lurch abandoned, was from. That, that was their house. So yeah. he moves back in, but now he's the butler of the place. There's a lot of cute stuff in that movie. It's not a great movie, but no, it's cute. It's, There's cute stuff in it. A few cute details. The, the best one is when Morticia uh, uses her father's uh, ashes as eyeshadow. Mm. The one I like anyway. is when uh, is when Wednesday mm. uh, is befriending like non-goth people in town. Mm. And in order to be like a rebellious teen, she puts a pink barrette in her hair. Right, with and Morticia calls it. it a gateway color. <laughs> It's kind of cute. That was funny. Yeah. And and I think they redeemed Pugsley in that movie, too, because he's just a vicious little shit again. Yeah, that's true. Um, anyway, uh, Morgan answers the door. He doesn't say a lot. He's really terrifying. And then we get to see the, the Hem brother and sister, uh, Horace and Rebecca, played by Ernst Thesinger from Bride of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. He plays and, uh, Dr. Pretorius in Bride right, of Frankenstein. And, and Ava Moore. Uh, and they are gigantic colorful characters Mm -hmm. they're constantly sniping at each other they hate humanity yeah and they're really judgy uh and in fact there's this really risque pre-code scene where uh gloria stewart goes uh, gloria stewart from titanic uh many years later many years later she was in titanic that that might be what modern audiences know her for probably so uh, but yeah, she was starring as ingenue in films in the 30s, uh, where she goes to change her clothes up in the bedroom. Because they're soaking wet because yeah. of the rain. And and of course, you know, James Whale says, well, let's get some cheesecake in here. And she strips out and we get to see her in a slip. And it's all very risque for a Hollywood movie of the era. And Rebecca is standing there saying, you're not one of, like, in 
not so many words. You're not one of those fornicators, are you? Yeah, and she talks about how I had a sister once and she died and she fornicated too much while I was praying for her soul. And Glory Stewart's getting increasingly freaked out by this. And the lady starts saying like, oh, and you've got nice frilly under things. Well, they'll rot. And so will this. And she just puts her hand right on like Glory Stewart's bosom. Yeah, yeah. And Glory Stewart is naturally like really shocked and horrified by this. And this is like, this has gone from we've entered into this creepy house with creepy people, mm. but everyone's trying to be basically kind of polite. Mm. You know, like, yeah. listen, it's like the, in that Goss, in that Gosford Park kind of way where like, I hate you and I don't care if you live or die, but we can have lunch. Like that kind <laughs> of thing. But like once she's off on her own with this old lady, she is just, she's basically assaulted hmm. and she kicks the lady out and she's trying to get her, 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 her shit together. And she tries to, and she starts like looking in a mirror, try to like put her face in order. And the mirror is warped and makes her look monstrous. And she is just sort of unable to escape the atmosphere that has been created. Yeah. And boy, is that, terrifying mm. i love that there's a shot in this movie that i think encapsulates that really well where mm. gloria stewart once again there's a moment where she's alone and she's next to a fireplace and it's casting these big wonderful shadows against the wall and the shadows also are very smoky so there's got like little billowy things it's not just white and black and she actually allows herself a moment of frivolity and she starts making shadow puppets Mm. And you see, right. and you see her shadow, and she's making these shadow puppets, and she's having a moment, and then the shadow of Rebecca just walks out from behind her, from out of nowhere, as if she emerged from Gloria Stewart's own shadow. Mm. It's so effective; it's really scary. Well, I, I and what I think this is is, um, I think she sort of represents a repressed sort of sexuality in the Gloria Stewart character mm. because she sexually assaults Gloria Stewart. Yeah, uh, she's. I think like watching this young woman get undressed and I think she's getting off on it. I think that's something James Whale is at least trying to communicate. Yeah. Well, there's, there's and, definitely, yeah. they've entered so a house of repression. They've entered this right. house of repression, uh, especially uh, from a queer filmmaker of queer repression. And I think that's a big theme that's going on in the old dark house. And that's something that the Rocky Horror Picture Show is definitely trying to bring out. And uh, Ernest Thessinger mm. is basically giving a, a similar performance to mm. his performance as Dr. Pretorius in Bride of Frankenstein, uh, which is to say very uh, uh, effeminate, very effete. Mm. Uh, he is very queer-coded. Mm. And he's trapped alone with his sister and a monster. And you can tell he is absolutely miserable in this house <laughs> and he is constantly terrified mm. of everything in this house and that he so would be th- very very happy if everyone just killed them killed like each other and like let him go mm. like and just let him like go about his day and do his crosswords like i'll bet he would yeah. love that but i think there the parallel between the old dark house and rocky horror is that uh the denizens of the mansion are trying to bring queerness out of the people who are coming to visit. Mm-hmm. Even, even though the, the young people are bringing sort of more life and energy and actual sexuality into the house. Mm-hmm. It's this sort of, uh, camp dark queerness that, uh, the, 
the Hem family is trying to extract. Well, I wonder how much of that is actually like a function of the story because well, uh, no, because I think it, this is a function of the director. I yeah. think he and and again, he's not trying to make any kind of dark comments on queerness. Uh, I think he because it's it plays a lot like a comedy. There's a lot of really. Uh, comic moments, things that are timed like they're comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you watch something like, you know, like Evil Dead 2, for instance, is, you know, it's a splatter film, but it's timed like a comedy. Yeah. Uh, and I think the same is the true of the old Dark House. It's, uh, the scenes play out as if they're setting up punchlines. And when something really goofy happens, it, it, it gets a titter from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, take the dinner scene, for instance. There's the scene where they finally all sit down to dinner and everybody eats a little bit differently in the way they pass things back and forth to one another without any dialogue whatsoever. You get to see these quirky little personality traits emerge and tiny little rivalries as you know the way they pass food to one another. So James Whale, although it's, it's really scary and it is this kind of spooky dark house atmosphere, mm-hmm. he's playing it for laughs. Well, here's one of the things I think is really amazing about The Old Dark House mm-hmm. is that this is a movie that is not beholden to a lot of horror genre tropes that came before it. The horror genre, again, existed. Mm. But a lot of the subgenres that we know of hadn't been properly codified yet. Mm. Some of them hadn't been invented at all. The Old Dark House is basically setting the template for every movie about my car broke down and now I'm in a scary place. Mm. It's setting a template for movies set in spooky castles. Mm. Uh, again, there had been others, but like this is a big one. And there's actually a, a quote I found from a review in uh, Time Out London, which I think is really spot on. Uh, it says, uh, Whale manages to, parry the, to parody the conventions of the dark house horror genre as he creates them. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is just really just wonderful about the film because he is establishing a template that is so primal and so uh, uh, universal, no pun intended. Uh, and yet, he's not making it just grim dark. He is actually the the movie doesn't feel like it's beholden to rules. The rules don't apply. Mm. Things can happen because they're scary. They don't. The plot doesn't actually make a ton of sense. It doesn't. In fact, there's actually a lot of things that are never completely resolved in the film. As the night goes on, a few more guests come in, including Charles Lawton in his first American movie. Uh, He comes in with a showgirl uh, who he has been seeing. And we find out that he's... uh, Everyone looks down on him because he seems like this, like, just upper-crust capitalist who's clearly just, like, with a mistress. And he gives a wonderful speech in which he undermines all of that and says, no, I'm actually, I do what I do for these very good reasons. And my heart got broken. And this is me trying to cope and like lose myself in my work. And it turns out the only thing I'm good at. And that's how people judge me. And it's actually a very sincere moment. Um, but, uh, uh, where was I going with this? <laughs> Sorry, I got distracted because Charles Lawton's so brilliant. Uh, satire and horror satire simultaneously. Is um, that where you're leading into this? I mean, basically, yeah, yeah. We're, we're adding more characters. We're adding more more comedy to it. But uh, over the course of the night, we learn more about the backstory of this family. That's what mm. I was getting. We learn more oh. about the backstory of this family. And we learn that there are actually more members in the house. One of whom is incredibly old, an incredibly mm. old man, over 100 years old, played by a woman. 
Uh, and uh, there's also uh, a mysterious third sibling named Saul, who uh, may we, or may not be a murderer we talk, locked in his yeah. room. And we talk about Saul a lot before we ever see Saul, so yeah. you're not sure if Saul is real or not. And then finally, after like we hear that Morgan may have let Saul mm. out of his room, you just there's a shot where you're looking up at like a tall banister on a staircase, and you see like one hand like clutch the banister. And you're like, oh, God, is that Saul? And then you see Morgan walk out. And you think, oh, it's just Morgan's hand. And then Morgan walks out past the hand. So it couldn't <laughs> possibly be his. And you realize, oh, shit, that's Saul. Hmm. And, but the backstory of this family, we've got, like, possibly murdered sisters. Possibly multiple people murdered the sister. Or maybe only one of them did. And the other one's lying about it. We've got this, like, 100-year-old person, like, locked up in the attic. And there are all of these questions that are raised none of them are answered actually almost nothing is resolved there's a there's a body count mm-hmm. like at least one or two people die but we don't actually get this like kind of and now everything's okay or oh and now i've solved the mystery of the what is it the hem family the hem family yes we've solved the mystery of the hem family like nope they're mysterious and weird and we are very happy to go because, wow, fuck those people. Those judgmental, weird, <laughs> homicidal arsonists with their weird butler who they're terrified of. Get a new butler. What are you doing? <laughs> if your butler gets drunk every night and tries to kill you, get a new butler. That's my advice. That's not a life well, hack. That's just good advice. Look, we can we can look at a horror movie and give give good advice from the outside, but when you're yeah. in this this essentially haunted mansion, yeah, you can't leave. Well, yeah, and that's my point. I is get it, the the point. You know, I get the idea that onions are all these things is the only thing these people ever eat, and they've been alive <laughs> for a thousand years. And yeah, well, again, that's my point. It's like it's not really following logic. Right. It's like we've entered into this weird dream state where because it is dark and because it is stormy and because we're at a castle and because we've encountered this like weird family, it's almost as though the movie's imagination has run away with itself. And now we're just at the mercy of whatever James Whale can think of. And James Whale is a very inventive filmmaker and he'll think of some weird shit. <laughs> and it's glorious. And it doesn't really, even though, again, it's setting this template other movies would follow, it doesn't feel like any of them. It's such an incredible, wonderful, frightening, funny, kind of romantic film. Like, people fall in love over the course of this thing. In that very 1930s way where, like, they meet and they have two conversations and they decide to get married. Uh, Yeah. Which is always, I I know it's a convention, but Mm -hmm. sometimes it's more plausible than others. This one seems they, like a bit of a stretch. They do at least have some chemistry, and they have like a real conversation, and mm-hmm. the, there's the whole bit where they bond over just an outright foot fetish scene. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. There's a couple of foot fetish scenes. Yeah, yeah. Like that, that's that's deliberate. That's oh uh, sure. They James, know what doing. James Whale knows what he's doing there. But again, again, you know, it's pre, it's pre code, but there was still only so much you could get away with mm. in a mainstream motion picture. So. You know, showing there's a reason why people would say like, "Oh, they showed my ankle to a chimney sweep." Ha ha. Uh, there was a time when you didn't see any part of a woman's body, like maybe mm. her fingers and her face, and like that's it. So an ankle would be like a forbidden mm. patch of flesh. So seeing like a, a starlet and like you know with her bare legs and her feet being splashed with water 
is more flesh than you would see in a typical film. You said sploshed. You did that on purpose, didn't you? Oh, I, uh, was that a thing? Sploshing food. Food fetish. Oh, oh I actually yeah. didn't think about that. Okay, yeah. Okay. My bad. It's a term I learned from John Waters, a dirty shame. Like, I knew it was out there, I just didn't yeah. know the term sploshing. I, until... I'm not I'm not, I'm not. not judging. Yeah. I just did I did that by accident. Oh, no, no. Follow your kinks. I was kink. going off of splash. Mm-hmm. By, by all means, follow your kinks. But that okay. is the name of that particular fetish. Yeah, exactly. As far as I know, sploshing. Fair enough. Um... Anyway, it's a delightful motion picture. What, do you have any it's, other thoughts we haven't discussed well, yet? Well, uh, just a, a little bit of my... Uh, oh, and also Saul. Oh, it, yeah. it turns out Saul is real, and Saul is a pyromaniac who uh, <laughs> is just uh, constantly eyeballing the flames. There's this and, amazing bit where like uh, Saul is loose... And uh, is it Melvin Douglas who's stuck in the, who stuck with him in the room, or is it uh, Raymond Massey? It's, I think it's Raymond Massey. Raymond Massey him. is uh, is stuck in a room with Saul, and Saul is actually like weaving a sympathetic narrative. They kept me locked in my room mm. because I know that they killed that sister. But the, and everyone else well, that's, is just that's part of the reason we kept you locked in the room. The well, other reason is you set shit on fire. <laughs> yeah, and so Raymond Massey is like, "Oh, that's that's too bad, buddy." And then Saul's just like, "Yes," and then he starts just sort of. Then he's playing like, with the knife, you know, just a little bit. And it becomes kind of like... Well, and, and at one point, like, in the middle of their conversation, he just sort of randomly says, uh, and that's really, really horrible, yes. The flames. The flames are like knives, did you know? <laughs> was like, and what, he's like, why, why? that was a weird left turn in the conversation. There's, there's a trope that we are now very familiar with, thanks largely to films like Manhunter or Silence of the Lambs, which is, uh, I know I am trapped in a room with a maniac who will kill me, and I just have to play nice. Mm. That's right here in the old dark house, and it is really, mm. really creepy. There's a couple of like really impressive like little bits here. Like, There's one where uh, Saul throws a knife across a room, and it lands in a chair, and it's all done in one shot. Mm. And it's clearly, I'm sure it was on like a line or whatever, but it's done very convincingly. Or just he knew how to do that. Uh, maybe if so, it was really, really mm-hmm. dangerous. There's another scene where people fall off like a second or third story uh, uh, staircase, oh. like onto like the floor in the lobby, and that's all done in one shot too. Hell of a stunt. There didn't see any bags there or anything mm-hmm. for safety. It, it, it was dummies. It wasn't one shot. Was it really? Yeah. There was. There's a clever edit in there, and it's, then I'm impressed. Yeah. And then and they cut really fast, so you couldn't tell it was dummies. I'm, but I'm it was gonna, really, really convincing. I'm going to tell you this right now. Mm-hmm. I I usually have a good eye for that. Mm-hmm. James Mill was getting away with shit yeah. right at the dawn of cinema. Uh, and, yeah, and there's some other weird uh, weird things to sort of keep you off put, which I think also, like, layer in a little bit more queerness, like uh, the uh, the patriarch slash matriarch of the family mm-hmm. uh, is played by an actress named Elspeth Dudgeon. Elspeth. Elspeth, excuse me. Uh, what a great name, Elspeth Dudgeon, who yeah. is credited as John Dudgeon mm-hmm. because she's playing a male character. Yeah, the story uh, goes that James Whale wanted to cast a man, but he couldn't find a, a male actor who looked old enough. <laughs> so he cast a woman and just went with it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting choice, though, wouldn't you say? Yeah. To uh, sort of bring, if if uh, what I'm saying is at all accurate, that these people are trying to bring out queerness out of these people who come to visit because they're repressing their queerness, that they'd be overseen by a trans character. Mm-hmm. I mean that's in the text. Whether or not it was intentional, yeah, we yeah. could we could argue. Well, whatever but again, James Whale's choices yeah. are, that's what's on screen. Yeah, and again, it, there's a plenty of other stuff in the film mm. to support that. The, the, again, the queer yeah. reading of the old dark house. And uh, the only thing I know Elspeth Dudgeon from is from that one GIF. 
Uh, <laughs> oh, with the with a, the weird with the transformation. Yeah, like the, there's really this really wonderful uh, photographic. I didn't realize that was her. That's amazing. Yeah, this this okay. uh, this wonderful old photographic effect uh, that they used to do in old movies where they could. Something with like lenses and and uh... it's it's a, it's a, I think it's gels. Where what happened was uh, she, Elspeth Dudgeon was playing like an old lady, and in the course of one shot, that's like a close up. Mm. She transforms she from pulls an old off lady. her wig, and yeah. yeah, and and her features get like really rotten, and her all of teeth a sudden, yeah. get all crooked and crazy. And uh, how they did that was she was wearing and it's all in black and white. She was wearing makeup uh, that looked perfectly normal. Uh, under like one kind of gel, but when you remove that gel, mm. all this like you know, so you she's wearing blue makeup. Mm. If you put on a blue gel, you don't see the blue makeup; it just bonds with everything. But you remove the blue gel, mm. and then all of a sudden, you see all of that makeup, and it really pops, and it's just they're, really, really frightening. Able to, yeah, to fade those two gels mm. together. So that's, yeah, it's, that's it's an oversimplification, real... but that's basically how it was done. It's really mm. incredible. It's an it's an amazing effect. You yeah. just look up the El- Elspeth Dudgeon and GIF, and you'll see what we're talking yeah. about. Uh, and that's all I know her for is this movie and that one effect. And you know what? That's a good run for anyone. I Just would those kill, two I things, would kill yeah. for that resume. That's a great resume yeah. right there. Um, the Old Dark House was, again, not a major success when it came out. I think it did slightly better overseas than it did in America. I think people weren't ready for a, that sort of blending of like high camp and horror just yet. Yeah, it, was, it isn't well defined. Like the universal horror style was a bit more monster-centric. And this is more about atmosphere and sort of social unease. And it wasn't, like, clearly defined as, that's the monster! I can point at the monster and see him. And he's bad. Or maybe misunderstood. Either way, they sh- they're gonna die in a windmill. Like, that kind of thing. It, does, it doesn't, like, fit into a certain frameworks. Uh, this is another... There's a lot of reasons, but this is another one of the reasons why Freaks didn't do too well. It just didn't really fit in a box. Um, so the movie kind of kind of fell by the wayside. It ended up being remade by William Castle. And Universal, as I understand it, lost the rights to the original story. And when William Castle remade it, they decided, as they often do, to bury the original. Make it so this, the original was not available. This has been common practice in Hollywood for a century. Uh, yeah, if we recently gonna, if, talked about this with Gaslight. Mm. They remade the British movie Gaslight like two years after it came out. Nearly, We nearly lost the film. Like, they, there was only like just, one it's copy It's like they left. destroyed all the prints. Uh, yeah, because it, it would be bad for their investment if other people, there was another version out there. Yeah, and, and that's true today. As uh, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned, I worked in a movie theater that did repertory screenings. Uh, whenever a remake was coming out or a new sequel. Mm-hmm. Of course, as a midnight show, we tried to book the original. It's like, watch the original in preparation because people are interested. And the studios never let you have it. Yeah. It's like, we have a new remake of Halloween coming out. This one's directed by Rob Zombie. Well, great. Let's get the John Carpenter movie. No, no. You have to wait. Uh, like, there was a span of time. You have to wait, like, six mm-hmm. months after the release of the new one yeah. before you can have the old one again. And this is even, this that, that that's in, like, a repertory thing. Mm-hmm. And we're talking, this happens all the time, even in streaming. I remember when uh, I think it was the remake of The Lion King came out and I came home from watching this movie and I was like, Ugh. and I really wanted to watch the original and I don't think I had it or maybe I didn't know where it was. So I just like checked online and they had like removed it from streaming services or if you mm. could get it, you had to pay like full price for it rather than just rent it for a couple of bucks. Mm. They did not want you to see the original and get your fill of The Lion King and then not want to go see the new one. So they buried the old dark house. It was nearly lost. 
finally, uh, uh, I think it was Curtis Harrington actually went on a hunt for it at Universal and he found a copy that needed massive sprucing up and mm-hmm. they did it. It got rediscovered. Didn't end up, I think, airing on TV until like the 90s. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I think it is not considered part of the Universal monster or Universal horror canon is because where was it? Mm. It was not readily available. It was actually pretty hard to find. Whereas Frankenstein, the mummy, the Wolfman, the creature from the Black Lagoon, these things were everywhere. So it is currently available. It is available on uh, is on Criterion. It's on Criterion. It's on Criterion. It's on Shutter. There's a very nice uh, home video Blu-ray release uh, that I highly recommend. It's gorgeous. It looks like it was filmed yesterday. Like, it's impressive how well they managed to restore this film. Um, And it really does still feel very fresh. It really hasn't aged as much as some of the other films of its era, just because there's still nothing quite like it, even though you're going to see the pieces in things like Rocky Horror Picture Show or in Mm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre or in whatever. Or, and just a few years later, the Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm. a lot of them. And eventually, well, I'm sure we will get to Bride of Frankenstein oh, on no, this oh, run cer- of episodes. Certainly will. We could just go through the James Whale filmography, but uh, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll space them out. We'll, we'll probably just do two or three. But mm. um, believe me, we have a lot of material to cover here. Mm. And uh, next time on episode zero, we're going to travel ahead a couple of decades. And much like when we uh, looked at a short film that unlocked Star Wars in a way that we could never have predicted. What was it? Was it uh, 5182? Yes. <laughs> um, I always got that wrong. 2187. 2187. Really? I never remember that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, From 1964, 2187. That, that was a short film that not only unlocked Star Wars, but kind of unlocked George Lucas's whole filmography. We're going to be looking at a short film from a really important and influential filmmaker who a lot of people aren't familiar with. Uh, we're going to be looking at Kenneth Anger's Scorpio Rising, uh, which is, first of all, not for all audiences. It, it's, it, it's, got, it's got some sex in it. It's got some stuff in it. Yeah. it, might, it it's, there's a reason it's considered an important film, and part of it is because it has shock value. Uh, but uh, it is currently available online. It's pretty easy to find if you search for it. Um, and um, this is an incredibly significant film, not just to Rocky Horror, to actually... Film at large. I, I remember um, I was at uh, a series of screenings at UCLA uh, that were the films that inspired Martin Scorsese. And this is one of the films that Martin Scorsese wanted highlighted. Yeah. Uh, and I'll explain why next week. It's a really fascinating film. It's a really important film. It's a really I, daring I, film. I encourage you just, if you're of age, uh, to, yeah. to just watch Scorpio Rising. Uh, whether or not you want to follow along with this new podcast of ours, I hope you do. Yeah. But uh, please watch Scorpio Rising because it's, it's an important it's, film. It's an important chunk of film history that doesn't get analyzed outside of classrooms too often. Exactly. So I'm excited to talk about it next week, which is what we will do. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on this new season of Episode Zero, Rocky Horror Edition. <laughs> uh, if you want to write in, if you want to talk about Rocky Horror, if you want to talk about the old Dark House or anything else we talked about on this podcast, or indeed anything else, you want to just ask me and Whitney a question, uh, recommend movies mm. to us, ask us for recommendations, ask us about our favorite popsicle, whatever you want to do. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net 
is the email address, and we may read your letter and answer it on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where our listeners can vote for future episodes of our various shows mm. and also access a lot of exclusive content, including, as we mentioned on this podcast, Only the Best, where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. Uh, we are also digging into every single episode of the 1960s Batman on a show called Holy Batman. Holy. Ho Holy, we spell it with a W. Thank you. Uh, we're watching every single episode ever made of Star Trek on a podcast we call All Our Yesterdays. Uh, we have a podcast dedicated to all the things that are not on Disney+, Plus, but should be on Disney+, Plus because Disney owns them, and a series called Not on Disney+. Plus. We also have commentary tracks. Last month we did Tim Burton Sleepy Hollow. Mm. This month we're going to be doing Die Another Day, because it's the best Bond movie. The ba Absolutely the best. Yeah. 100% the best Bond movie. Well, we're doing it anyway. Uh, and uh, Goldfinger who? <laughs> and, uh, and of course, we are on Twitter. We are on Twitter uh, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Um, and yeah, and if, if you can't afford to be a patron, follow us on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you can find us. Leave us a review if you can. That really helps people find the show. Um, at, or just tell a friend. Mm. Uh, either way, we're really, really grateful that you're here with us. We're really, really grateful that you're here in general. Um, thank you so much for helping the show exist, thrive, keep going, do more cool things. Uh, I love all of these projects that we're a part of. And until next time, I see you shiver with Antissa.